know, as we sing those verses, I always think of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, when he talks to the Corinthians, he says, what? He says, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And he says, you've been bought with a price, therefore, because of that, glorify God in your body. And, uh, you know, he mentions the Holy Spirit, who has the power to do that, and that's what we're going to celebrate this morning as we talk about the Christ's promise of sending the Spirit. This morning we're going to conclude our brief series on the Passion Week. We've seen the triumphal entry, which really didn't materialize in its triumph. It led to the cross, the rejection of Jesus, the crucifixion, the murder of Jesus, and then to the resurrection three days later as he rose victorious over sin and death. And now we're going to look at the 40 days concluding his stay here on earth as he was in bodily form with his disciples, and then he ascended to the right hand of power, in fact, the right hand of ultimate power at the right hand of the Father. And we're going to look at that today. So I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 1. Let's begin our time in God's Word. I want to read with you verses 1 through 12, just to set the, the tone and the mood and the context for what we'll be talking about. And he says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, and Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he's the author of the book of Luke. So he ended Luke with the ascension, and now he starts with the ascension account, and he will go and give us the early history of the church as... He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul for the most part. And he says, uh, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This was only the beginning. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders or commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. And that's kind of a brief two-sentence uh, synopsis of the Gospel of Luke, isn't it? He says, to these, to the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, or what you'd call the invisible kingdom and then the coming kingdom. He says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You can just imagine what it had been like, all gathered there, and all of a sudden Jesus just kind of disappears into the sky. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and also said, men of Galilee, why, are, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Let's 
speaking of the second coming. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. And that's important. File that away in your mind. They were on the Mount of Olives when this took place, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And that's not very far away because you couldn't go very far on the Sabbath according to Jewish law. So, now I've entitled this message this morning, The Ascension, The Story Has Just Begun. Because it had just begun. And by that I mean the work of our Lord Jesus Christ is both finished and unfinished. The great and awesome work of redemption is finished. Nothing can be added to it or taken away from it. Hebrews 10.14 tells us, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or saved. Verse 12 of that chapter tells us, But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So what we're seeing is the end of that verse. Forty days later, he ascends into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he reigns in glory through his church, and one day will come and reign with great power and great glory, the Scripture tells us. Christ died once for all, for all time, and there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Christ paid our debt in full. You say, how do we know that? Well, he proved that claim by rising from the dead three days later. He said he would, and he did. It's one of the most substantiated facts of history. The reason being that he might offer you and I the free gift of eternal life. That's a hard thing to understand, isn't it? The free gift of eternal life. Because every other religion on the face of the earth, but true Christianity or biblical Christianity says, you've got to earn your way somehow and get there by your good works, and hopefully on the last day, if your goodies outweigh your baddies, uh, then you'll make it. Or uh, kill yourself and uh, you know, blow yourself up for some cause, or be a martyr, and, and maybe you'll make it that way. Christianity says it's a free gift. The wages of sin is death, both physical and spiritual death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23. It's a hard thing to swallow in our works-oriented, I'm-so-great world, and I'm going to earn my way to God, and I'm such a good person, and I'm basically a good person, even though I've sinned thousands of times. But uh, it's a free gift. And we'd like to, this morning, offer you that free gift. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, we'd love to share with you what he did on your behalf, that he died once for all, for all time. He took on the wrath for your sin from a holy God, and he bore it himself to the cross. And he proved that claim that he was able to do that by rising from the dead, victorious over sin and death, three days later. That work is done forever. Hallelujah. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thing that... The work of redemption is accomplished. But the proclamation of that great redemptive message and the work of building the church, Matthew chapter 16, and in this passage we just read, had only begun and has continued to this day some 2,000 years later. That's the amazing thing, isn't it? What began on that day, on the day of Pentecost, a few days later after the ascension, has continued to this very day and still operates with great power and great glory. 
The establishing of the kingdom of God and the work of building the church goes on and flourishes to this day. And the physical ascension of our Lord into heaven is an essential part of that of finishing his work here on earth as he entrusts the finishing of the work to his disciples. He has no other plan than us. Isn't that a scary thought? We are the plan. We are the means by which his work is going to be finished of proclaiming the fact that his finished work on the cross redeems mankind from their sin. We're the deal. We're it. He has no other plan. I remember reading an illustration where the angels came to Jesus when he ascended and said, what's the deal here? You know, how are you going to get your work finished on this earth? And he says, well, my disciples. And they like, you know, freaked out. But look what's happened over the last 2,000 years. Millions and billions of people have come to Christ through the church, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through you and me who are the church. That's an incredible thought. It's just an incredible thing. Now, as we look at the ascension in these verses, and, you know, as we go through this, don't, don't forget that you and I are the plan. We're Jesus' means to take the message to a needy, sinful, dying world. Now, as we look at the ascension in these verses, there's a lot of things going on here, basically six that I found. You may find more, but I found basically six. There's the passing of the baton in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, there was the preparation for that passing of the baton in verse 3. Thirdly, there was the power of that passing in verses 4, 5, and 8. Then fourthly, there was the promise, quote, question mark of that passing in verses 6 and 7. Then fifthly, our Lord's plan for that passing in verse 8. And then lastly, the parousia, or the second coming of that passing in verses 9 through 12. And we'll look at these individually as we go through here. So first of all, let's look at the passing of that baton in verses 1 and 2. Again, Luke is writing to his friend or counterpart. or I, Nobody really knows who Theophilus was, but obviously he was somebody important because Luke wrote two of the largest books in the New Testament to this one person, uh, and it was passed on to us. That's how important it is because it's God's holy word. He says about all that Jesus began to do and teach. This is only the beginning. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders. And the thrust of the Greek word is there that he has com commanded his apostles um, whom he had chosen. He commanded them about something. Now, we've all seen a track meet either on TV or in person, or maybe you've gone over to the high school and seen a track meet, and they have like the 100-meter uh, relay, they have the, uh, or the 400-meter relay, and then the 800-meter relay, and there's three times there's a baton that's being passed from the lead runner to the second guy, from the second guy to the third guy, from the third guy to the fourth guy, and the fourth guy's the, the, you know, your world-class sprinter who brings it home, right? But when that baton is passed flawlessly, the team has a great chance of winning because these are all, like in the Olympics, are all world-class athletes. 
But if you mess up the baton passing, nothing happens, right? Either drop it or, you know, it slows them down so much and the other guy's, you know, leaving you in the dust. And uh, if you flaw the baton passing, you're not going to win. Nothing's going to happen. Now, Luke in this verse is uh, telling Theophilus how Jesus handled the passing the passing the passing of his baton to his disciples for three years after calling them to himself he taught and instructed them in the word of god which is really the essence of discipleship but the other half of discipleship is the fact that you live your life in a manner that's worth following you know leadership is when a guy does and says the right things when they need to be done and said and there's people following him, otherwise he gets out too far and he becomes a target, right? Jesus flawlessly lived his life, sinlessly lived his life before his disciples. He performed hundreds of miracles in their presence. He taught them. He foretold them his plans and purposes in going to the cross. He foretold them of his resurrection, even though they didn't believe it. And after he rose from the dead, he continued to teach and instruct and prepare and commission them for carrying on his work. And he did that for the next 40 days, it says, until his ascension. As verse 2 says, until the day he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders or commanded the apostles whom he had chosen. Or as Matthew 28 and 19 says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, in this endeavor. I added that last little line, but that's what we're doing today, isn't it? We continue to pass it on. We continue to take that baton and hand it off to the next generation, hopefully, and that's why we're here today, 2,000 years later. They did not take this lightly because they were commanded to do it and they gave their lives to do this. In other words, the baton was passed flawlessly, just as it is to us. The only question is, what do we do with the baton once it's passed? Do we run our leg of the race or the relay with faithfulness and pass it on to the next generation? Or do we drop the baton in the transition? You know, there's hundreds of applications here, and I, I won't bore you with them, but, you know, think about your family. Are you passing the baton on to your children? Are you passing your baton, the baton of the gospel on to your grandchildren? Are you passing the baton on to those who uh, are your acquaintances, uh, friends you love and work with? Uh, uh, are you passing the baton on to people you meet when the opportunity arises? I mean, our world is so incredibly needy, you can hardly walk out that door without encountering somebody whose life is a train wreck. How are we doing passing the baton? That's what the gospel is all about. And Jesus passes the baton on to his disciples to finish his finished work, if you can look at it that way. The work had already been finished. The cross was now history. 
The resurrection was now history. But the message is fresh every morning, every day, every time you share it. You know, I've encountered people where I've shared the gospel with them, and, and in several cases they go, you know, I've been waiting to hear that all my life. Well, what did you hear? Well, in one case, the guy said, I, I went to an evangelistic meeting, and I felt a burning sensation when the guy laid his hand on me. And they go, what in the world was that? You know, was he sweating at the same time too? But we need to be able to define the gospel. You need to be able to define the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. Three days later, he rose according to the scriptures. And we need to learn what it is that according to the scriptures is all about too. The simplicity is Christ died for our sins. He was buried, rose again, and he offers us the free gift of eternal life. We need to be able to define that for people and not be fuzzy about it. So Jesus passes the baton on flawlessly to his disciples. Now secondly, let's see how he prepared his disciples to receive it. Look at verse 3. He says to these, the disciples, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. And Believe me, if you read the scriptures accurately, they were not easily convinced, even after he rose. And he says, uh, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, this wasn't just a one-time thing, and, oh, Jesus is alive, and, and, you know, and then two days later you go, did I really see what I saw? Is that really real? He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And that is a whole sermon all by itself, but uh, we'll just touch on it and you can study it out later. But um, now, simply put, the disciples didn't just need the proper message to proclaim, but they needed the proper motivation to proclaim it, the proper convictions to proclaim it. This they received from the resurrected Savior. He presented himself alive, not just once, but many times, it says, by many convincing proofs. And for a period of 40 days, he continued to instruct them concerning the kingdom of God, preparing them to run their leg of the relay. Because the baton was being passed. He was going to leave very soon. And he wanted them to do what they were commissioned, what they were commanded to do. Let me read you an encounter they had. Flip back one gospel to the Gospel of Luke, a little bit to the left. And Jesus had just encountered the people on the road to Emmaus, uh, Cleophas and his buddy, whoever it was. And it says in verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Boy, I would have loved to have been there. But then they... They encountered the disciples in verse 36, and, and they shared what happened. It says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. <laughs> that must have been spooky. All of a sudden, there's Jesus, and how in the world did he get in here? We didn't let him in. He didn't knock. And said to them, uh, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. Okay, they weren't easily convinced, folks. 
They didn't believe what he said about his crucifixion and resurrection, and they weren't about to believe that he had actually risen from the dead. And now he begins to convince them. And he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? In other words, why do you have no faith, O ye of little faith? I, I can't even tell you how many times that was used in the Gospels. You know, he kept saying to the disciples, O ye of little faith, slow to believe all the prophets have said, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, right now, they're just not getting it. He said, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. First thing he convinced them of is that he was an actual risen Savior. His body was risen bodily from the dead. This wasn't just some thing they were trying to make up or, or whatever. Jesus rose from the dead in bodily form and says, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they were still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, I mean, this got them excited. This is really Jesus who was crucified. He's alive. We buried him. We saw them take him down from the cross. We saw the spear in his side. We saw the nails in his hands and feet. We saw the crown of thorns on his head, and he's alive. They're amazed. And he said to them, have you anything to eat? Now, if you know anything about spirit or demon possession, you know that a demon now, because they're immaterial, have to possess a human body in order to enjoy all the sins and depravity of this world. That's why they possess people, because they can't enjoy them themselves unless they possess a human body. And so he eats. Spirits don't eat on their own. If they want to get gluttonous and stuff, they have to possess a human. So Jesus ate and uh, ate it before them, right in front of them. He ate fish, which tells us that we'll eat in heaven. And that's exciting. <laughs> it's not going to be an austerity, uh, you know, continual eternity of fasting. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, the crucifixion and the resurrection. I told you this was going to happen to me three or four or five times in the Gospel of Matthew as we were preaching through there. We saw Jesus say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise from the dead. That was his message four or five times to his disciples, and they didn't get it. And then he explains it to them again now that he's risen from the dead and say, here's the proof of what I told you before that was going to happen to me. Now it's happened. Now believe it. And it will form the message that you preach to the world. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance, and get this, for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why the gospel is being proclaimed in America. We are the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus said it would happen, and it's happening, and continues to happen. 
He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father. We'll see that in a moment. Upon you, but you are to stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and we know that Bethany was on the Mount of Olives. It says, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Wouldn't that be great to just be able to lift your hands and be carried to heaven? That'd be awesome. It says, and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy, just as he had said, and were continually in the temple praising God. That's one of the convincing proof passages. Now, again, we see the faithful preparation for and the passing of the baton as our Lord convincingly presents himself as alive from the dead. He opens their minds to the word of God, and he commissions them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to all nations. And you know what? That's exactly what we do this morning. We're still doing it, right? You know, we're constantly telling you to take the gospel to the world. Take it to where you work. Take it to your school. Take it to your relatives, your friends, your acquaintances, whatever. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we're constantly telling you. Even today. It hasn't changed. You know, my goal as a preacher is to stay as close to what God says as I possibly can, to be as unoriginally as I possibly can. Unoriginal. You probably say, well, you do a good job of that. But, <laughs> but that's what we're still doing. We try to convince people we serve a living Savior. We instruct them from the Word of God. We share the gospel, the good news. We pass the baton that's our purpose in this world and still remains our purpose in this world. That's why we're here. That's why God doesn't just kill us and take us to heaven. Heaven's going to be way better than this. But we're here for a witness. We're here for a testimony, aren't we? We're here to take the gospel to whomever will listen to us. As Pastor Craig was saying a couple weeks ago, you know, we take the gospel to whoever will listen and Who's that one person that you're praying about fervently that you want to take the gospel to that is in your circle of acquaintances and that you really want to know and that you really want to see come to Christ? Who's that one person this year that you've been praying about ever since that message, right? Amen. Anyway, now let's look at the power of that passing. Look at verses 4 and 5 back in the book of Acts, chapter 1. It says, Gathering them together, gets all the disciples, the eleven together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me. For John baptized with water, a, a baptism of repentance, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. He doesn't say you might be my witnesses, or maybe if you feel like it, uh, be my witness. You shall be my witnesses. We are a witness. The question is, are we a good one or are we a bad one? We're all witnesses. 
to the glory of Christ. And that's, that's the point he's making here. Uh, but when you th- consider this passing of the baton, what an awesome task he was laying at the disciples' feet. I mean, can you imagine 11 of us are together. Christ is there. He's just risen from the dead. And he says, now I'm going to leave. And you guys are going to evangelize the world. And you look at each other, and there's 11 of you, and go, you've got to be serious. You've got to be kidding. How in the world are we going to do this? You know, he commissions them in Matthew 20, 28 to make disciples of all nations. Here we're told to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in Acts 1.8. Luke 24.47, it says repentance and forgiveness was to be preached to all the nations. Eleven guys. Who is worthy of such things? Who has the power to accomplish such an impossible task? Simple answer, God. That's the simple answer. The Holy Spirit. That's it. The power of the Holy Spirit can accomplish that. And if we look over history over the last 2,000 years, is and has accomplished that. That's an incredible thought, just, just to contemplate that. And, and what began on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem when the Spirit of God was poured out without measure and the church exploded onto the scene has continued to this very day. An awesome power was released that day of Pentecost, the power of God, the power of of the Holy Spirit. You know, I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse four, beginning of verse 14. He, he prays for them that God would grant them according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ would be at home in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and breadth and width, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And then he says, and be filled all the fullness of God. And then he says this, now unto him who is able to do, he can't think of enough superlatives, he says, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that you ask or think according to the power that works within where? You. You're going, you're kidding. That power works within me? Well, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it does. And then he says, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations. That's the power that has been passed on from generation to generation to generation to do the work of passing the baton of the gospel on to generation after generation after generation. And God has supplied the power to do what he has asked. He never asks us to do the impossible, but that he doesn't supply the power. And here he's asking something that just is mind-boggling. I mean, it is so, it's so off the charts. He's telling them to evangelize the entire world, starting from Jerusalem. And then he says, but I will supply you the power to do it. That's a pretty good deal. Power to live, power to speak up for Christ, to be an ambassador of Christ here on earth. We have the word of reconciliation, the Ministry of reconciliation because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. 
in 2 Corinthians 5. That prayer has been answered and continues to be answered because the power unleashed on that day by his spirit has strengthened and empowered his church in every generation. We have seen millions and millions and millions of people come to Christ over the 2,000 years, haven't we? If not billions. Heaven will not be sparsely populated because we have received the power to witness for our Lord Jesus Christ by his own spirit. Now, fourthly, there was the promise question mark, right, spoken right at the ascension of that passing. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of heaven or to Israel? Sorry. He said to them, uh, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now one commentator said a paradoxical component of the resources for continuing the Lord's ministry or work was something believers don't know and can't find out. Isn't that a bummer? I find that very irritating. Um, now notice... Jesus doesn't deny their expectation of a literal earthly kingdom for the nation of Israel. It wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Their hopes and expectations weren't wrong. It's just that it was fixed by the Father's authority and it was none of their business as to when. Got that? That means we don't set dates for our Lord's return to reign, as so many do basically to make money and have everybody give them their earthly possessions and the Lord doesn't come and one guy's rich and everybody else is poor, right? But anyway, that's gone down through the ages. Everybody's predicting the Lord's coming. He said, no, it can't be done, so don't do it. You can discern the times, but you can't know the time. Why do we do these things? Well, it's disobedience to the Lord. Now I ask you, isn't that irritating? Because now that I'm a believer, the establishing of the future kingdom of Christ and the millennial reign of Christ, Revelation 20 talks about for a thousand years, and the exaltation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords is always foremost in my mind. I can't wait. Just like a little kid sucking on his thumb. I just can't wait to see that happen. I mean, I would, I would like to see it happen this moment, this second, the start of it anyway. But it was foremost in the disciples' minds. Is it this time that you're going to get this going? Because they're excited. They wanted to rule with Christ. Now they understood what it meant to rule with Christ, and they're ready. But he would have them give their lives for the coming kingdom and not rule at this point. You know, now that redemption has been accomplished, why put it off? Let's get on with the kingdom. Let's get on with the good stuff, you know. Turn to uh, Mark chapter 13. Again, I want to read you a little bit of an extended portion of Scripture that really uh, gives us biblical perspective on this. And Jesus is talking about the end times. He's talking about the signs of the times in this passage. And he says in verse 28, he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When it's 
branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, you can discern the times. You know that things, I mean, you look at our world today and the Lord's coming can't be that far off. may not come in my lifetime. It may not come in your lifetime, but it's in God's timetable. That's still not very far off. And he says, even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. You know, one day is is a thousand years of the Lord, a thousand years is one day. But be ready. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. That actually excludes radio preachers and TV preachers also. They don't know. They can discern the times and they can preach on the end times and that's wonderful. We need to be dressed in readiness. But nobody knows. He says, take heed, keep on the alert. That's our part, isn't it? For you do not know when the appointed time will come. In other words, be ready because it could happen. It could get, the ball could get rolling any time. And he says, it is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. You know, four times in that passage, his warning is be alert, be ready, be dressed and ready. How do we do that? Well, um, that's involved in point five. The Lord's program as he passes a baton. That means... We're dressed in readiness if we're involved in that. Look at verse 8. He says, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses under Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That's God's program right now. You know, it's interesting to think about that, that uh, the, kingdom, the visible kingdom of God will not be coming until the kingdom is populated. And we're right now, for the last 2,000 years, have been populating the kingdom by sharing Christ with people, and they become part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. And that's the point. We are in the process right now of populating the visible kingdom of God. You can see it in the church, the true church, and you can see it someday when it comes in its fullness, and that will be exciting when the saints of all time are, are brought to earth to reign with Christ. And that is accomplished by our witness. It's interesting, the word martyr race is for witness, our willingness to give our lives to spread the good news, to build the kingdom. And the word witness or martyr actually comes, martyr race actually came to mean martyr, uh, as down through the ages so many have given their lives that others might find life in Christ. And not just life, but actually life eternal. 
I don't know if we have it really fixed in our minds what eternal life is. That means life that never, ever, ever ends. This life ends. I don't care how rich you are, how famous, how much pleasure you've had. Whatever you've done, it's going to end. One way or the other. might end happily with visions of the kingdom of God on your dancing before your eyes. Or it may end in abject misery, wondering what's on the other side. We already know. People don't like it because we communicate to them that we already know. <laughs> and that's a scary thing for people to contemplate. But so many martyrs have given their life. Tertullian, the theologian in the second century, said that the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church as so many were drawn to Christ as, as they observed how Christians calmly and joyously meant their deaths. I would, I would encourage you to read the book Jesus Freaks. It's put out by Voice of the Martyrs. I'd order it. You can probably get it online. Great book. Uh, just testimony after testimony of those who have suffered and died for Christ and spread the gospel uh, by giving their life for Christ. Well, so much could be said here, but God's program for his church, his disciples, is that the gospel be passed faithfully from one generation to the next, often at the expense of our very lives. You know, Paul said it right in Philippians 1.21. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So losing this life is really gaining the life to come, which will never end. And lastly, what's the motivation for all this? Well, from what Jesus says here, I would have to say the parousia or the second coming. Look at verses 9 through 12. He says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in White clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why, are you, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus whom, uh, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of All called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, simply put, the angels tell us that just as Jesus ascended into heaven, so he'll descend from heaven, and that's when the kingdom of Christ will come and he will rule the nations from Jerusalem for a thousand years here on earth. It tells us in Revelation chapter 20, the millennial reign. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 tells us about that kingdom uh, where all people and nations and men of every language will serve him. And his dominion will be an everlasting dominion which will not fade away. At the second coming, we read in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, tells us his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And Revelation 16 says that when that happens, the Mount of Olives literally splits in two and it causes an earthquake that is so massive, it causes every mountain range to disappear, every island to be covered with water. That's an earthquake, folks. That's the signaling of his coming. He didn't sneak here like the Jehovah Witnesses say in various times. 
He doesn't come spiritually. He comes on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory, and there will not be a person that miss his second coming. Don't ever think Jesus sneaks around stuff. At the second coming, he'll come just like he left from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 tells us, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That's you and me. And we come to rule with him. We come to reign with him. Matthew 24.30 tells us he will, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Promise he repeated at his trial. To the, as they were condemning him, he says, You won't see me again till I come in great power and great glory. Listen to how John describes this. This would be the last place I have you turn to, but turn to the book of Revelation 19. I don't think the ascension would be complete without going to this passage. Because the ascension is all about passing the baton of the kingdom. And someday the kingdom is going to arrive in full force when Jesus comes. And here's a description of it. The marriage supper of the Lamb of the church, the bride, has already taken place. And we come back clothed in bright linen, fine and clean, it says in verse 8. And then in verse 11 it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, speaking of the cross and the resurrection. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, bright and clean, were following him on white horses. And who's that? Us. All his holy ones with him. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and this obviously symbolic with a word, he'll slay the nations so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Finally, the day of grace is over. Christ takes up his rightful rule and it's a rule where he will be sovereign and we will obey. Fortunately, by then we will have glorified bodies and minds and won't have a problem obeying and he says, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then we have the Battle of Armageddon. The false prophet and the Antichrist are thrown alive into the lake of fire. Satan is bound. And we read this in chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, after the armies of the world have been slain. And he says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were concluded. After these things, he must be released for a short time. A thousand years Christ reigns. Satan is released at the end of that, and he leads a rebellion. In the final rebellion, fire comes down from heaven and just incinerates those who rebel. Then he says, I saw, heaven, I saw thrones, 
And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. Apparently, right as this is all happening, there's a resurrection that takes place. And it's the tribulation saints, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And it's interesting, we have a religion now that's in the process of taking over most of the world, who favorite, their favorite mode of execution is beheading any infidel, and Christians are considered infidels. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of the, on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? For a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests to God and Christ and will reign with him for a, how long? A thousand years. When the thousand years is completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And the final rebellion is squashed. And then we have the great white throne judgment where heaven and earth literally flee from the presence of Christ who is on the throne where he ascended to. And then you have the creation of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the issue of sin and redemption and glorification, all that is finalized forever. Beloved, just as surely as our Lord ascended into heaven, so he will return or descend from heaven to reign over a literal and historic future kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ. We call it the millennium, and it will be right here on earth. He will reign. Revelation 16, they praise him and say, you have taken your great power and have become and have begun to reign. Because this world is wrapped in darkness right at the moment. So we see the ascension. Christ passes the baton to his disciples and to us to carry on his unfinished work. He prepares us to do so through his word. He empowers us by his spirit. We have the promise of his coming kingdom. We have the privilege of carrying out his plan and purpose to populate the kingdom. And we will one day have the joy of reigning with him for a thousand years here on earth and then forever with him in the new heavens and new earth. And that's going to be a marvelous, incredible kingdom that uh, we see it in Scripture, but we just can't even imagine the magnitude of what it's going to be like. It's going to be awesome. And let me leave you with these verses. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, God rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he's speaking of this world. The ruler of this world has been judged, but he's still at work in people's lives. He's the prince of darkness. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, but God transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now we have eternity to look forward to. Isn't that amazing? Because of the cross, the resurrection, Christ kept preaching to them the coming kingdom 
And then he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand to guarantee that that kingdom would come soon. It says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Is there anything better in this world than to be forgiven? I mean, we experience it on a human level, but on a divine level, God has no reason to forgive us. We've rebelled against him, we've sinned, we've you know, kicked our relationship with him to the curb. Why would he ever forgive us, and yet he has in Christ? This is the, one of the greatest mysteries you'll ever consider. So now, because we're in the kingdom, how are we doing with the unfinished work of the kingdom? How are we doing running our leg of the relay? Who are we passing the baton onto? Who is that one person, as I said, Pastor Craig challenged us with several weeks ago, that, that we want to pass the gospel onto? Who is it? Are we helping finish the unfinished work of our Lord? Even the bigger question, are we even in the race? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you, we are running a race, and you have passed the baton to us. You've, you've given us the awesome task of finishing your unfinished work, that, of proclaiming the gospel, the good news to a lost and dying world. And Lord, what, a, what an incredible commissioning that is. And God, we thank you for the power to do so, that you've given us the power of your spirit to do that, that Lord, unless you ascended into heaven, you said that you wouldn't be able to send the Spirit. So you ascended and you sent the Spirit, and the church has been empowered now for over 2,000 years. What an incredible thing. Thank you, Lord, that uh, though we're unworthy of the task, yet you have equipped us to accomplish that task. So send us forth as you did the apostles with the promise of your Spirit and the filling of your spirit, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would fill each one of our hearts today, that you would give us opportunity to share the kingdom of God, to share the gospel of God with, with uh, those who need to hear. And Lord, that we'd share it with one another just to encourage each other, to talk about spiritual things, to, to uh, really uh, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.